So let's begin this topic of crisis handling. Now, it was Benjamin Franklin who said there were only two things that were certain in life, um, death and taxes. It's an often quoted phrase. Um, but I want to add a third absolute certainty in life, and that is a crisis. We will all encounter crises as we go through our lives. That's both from a professional and personal perspective. So, yes, death is inevitable. Yes, taxes are inevitable. But also encountering crises is also an inevitability of being a human. And so what we're going to cover as we go through this session are a host of kind of mindset things, um, experiences, ideas, and opportunities really to embrace crises and not really uh, run for cover. Because a lot of people really will sort of think of a crisis and think, oh, that's something I want to avoid. Whereas actually, if you think about it and stop and think about it and be really honest with yourself, it is really a test of your resilience. It's a, um, a rating, if you like, of your personal strength and maybe adaptability. Um, it will certainly challenge you. Um, a crisis is there potentially not as a negative situation, but as an opportunity really to climb back to what we might term neutrality in our world. In other words, to kind of bounce back, to kind of resonate back into um, a sort of equilibrium, if you like, or balance when things you know, knock us a little bit out of sync. Um, and for other people who don't see this as a negative, it really is an opportunity to embrace life's probable toughest challenges. Um, and this in itself really helps us to become a lot more self-aware, uh, a lot more um relentless in our pursuit of our goals and the things that we're looking to achieve in our lives and also really as part of an overarching kind of personal development on the journey that we call life. So a crisis really is a, an interesting uh, situation that you will encounter and I want to first as I always do in these sessions really kind of define what we mean by crisis because I think that is that's a really kind of important thing. Because if we can define what we mean by crisis, we can then ease into it and, you know, not necessarily just sort of see our heart rate um, increasing, see our breathing becoming short, but actually decide, OK, this is a crisis. We've actually just entered into a crisis situation. Let's just not panic. Let's just stay calm. Let's prepare. And let's kind of not live in fear that this thing is going to overrun us, take over us, you know, give us huge amounts of anxiety and, um, you know, sort of unbalance in our world. Let's just kind of think it is what it is. OK, well, how are we going to respond? And then actually, you know, take choice, really, in what we've encountered, because I think for a lot of people who are, you know, sort of masters, if you like, of handling crises and a lot of people professionally actually have this as part of their day job. You know, they are set the task of managing crises. You think of people who work predominantly in PR are often handling crises. They're often looking to communicate effectively and appropriately with target audiences to calm kind of just really, you know, sort of dampen the flames, if you like, of the crisis and kind of manage their way through it. So we're going to draw on lots of um, sort of ideas and techniques that these kinds of people who very successfully navigate through a crisis, not based on fear, but actually based on just a recognition that it is just what it is. And that's a really important starting point. So what I want to do is give five different examples as we go through this session of different types of crises. And if they encounter or you encounter these in your life, both work and private life, then 
things that you can potentially think about to to strike that neutrality again, to get back into balance, to not just be running for the hills, running for cover or burying your head in the sand and think, I just hope it goes away. But actually proactively managing your way through the crisis itself. So the five areas I wanted to focus on as we go through this session are redundancy. For a lot of people, that is a huge, huge crisis. Um, and we'll talk about some of the reasons why that might be and what you can do about it. Bereavement. Now, there is a real life crisis that we'll, we will all encounter multiple times as we go through our lives. So there are things you can do. And I'm going to give you some personal experience of mine that just help me to navigate um, when that happened for me. Also, running out of cash. This is where we'll kind of move into the more kind of sort of commercial or maybe business um, crises that we all often encounter, um, where a business potentially or an individual might run out of cash. And that can trigger off feelings of being in a crisis. Disasters at work, you know, major disasters, fires, you know, catastrophes, things that go massively wrong. These are things that will be triggering off a crisis system or a crisis process. So how can we learn from those who really navigate these and manage these really effectively? We'll look at that. And also at a kind of a day to day level, you know, crises don't have to be major life changing things. They can often be things that we encounter, you know, in a much more kind of frequent fashion. So things like customer complaints. So we're going to look at each of these five and I'm going to talk you through kind of things that you can do when you inevitably encounter these things. So redundancy, bereavement, lack of cash, disasters at work and then customer complaints. So we're going to go through each of those and just really explore the different ways that you can kind of frame these things, because a lot of this is about framing a crisis and not necessarily thinking, oh, no, it's a crisis right straight into panic mode, but actually understanding why these things might trigger you into identifying them as a crisis. So the, these five elements, and of course, you know, there will be lots of other different crises that you might sort of be able to add into that list. And I'm sure, you know, if personally, you know, you're finding particular challenges at the moment, personally or professionally, then you'll know that there are lots of other examples out there. But a crisis typically will have in common with other types of crises, a number of different features, if you like. One is uncertainty. A crisis typically makes you or gives you feelings of uncertainty. You're not quite sure how to take the next step. Or there's kind of stuff that goes on in terms of your decision making, for example. There's just kind of uncertainty about the outcome, the uncertainty of just not necessarily having clarity over your thinking. So there's a lot of stuff that kind of goes into this. Also, unknowns. Crises typically will help you to enter into the world of the unknown. So these will be often times when you encounter stuff for the first time. And for a lot of people, entering into the world of the unknown is a quite uncomfortable place to be. So crises often have unknown features and factors that help to define them as crises. A crisis can also have in common with other crises, chaos. You know, often it feels like a little bit of lack of control. It feels like you're kind of beholden to something or someone else. Um, and often it feels that, oh, you know, I'm not really sure both what to do next, but also even if I choose to do a particular sort of course of action, I'm not really sure that that's actually going to help. And you kind of almost get into that reactive and at times self-destructive mindset. 
So we need to figure out ways of actually dealing with this if this is you. But also they have in common the fact that they are always an opportunity. And this is always an opportunity to develop and improve a system or a process or a mindset or an understanding or a set of kind of you know, factors of, of knowledge. So they always have a flip side. So if when I say to you, right, I want to put you in this situation, it's a crisis situation. If you're then automatically thinking, oh, thanks, Neil. Well, that's a really negative thing to do. The flip side of it is it's an opportunity for personal or professional development. So the flip side, and there's always a flip side to everything, but a crisis situation often for most people is perceived initially as a negative. But what I want to do is kind of talk you through ways of actually repositioning that into every time you encounter a crisis to be able to kind of reframe it as being, okay, why am I being sent this crisis in my life? What can I learn from it? How can I improve and how can I develop? So actually seeing it as an opportunity is a huge, huge benefit of a crisis arriving in your world. So let's go through all these five that I was going to talk to you about. So the first one I want to talk to you about is redundancy. Okay, there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of chaos in commercial world right now. So no matter what sector or industry you're in, there's a lot of kind of unsettled behaviours happening. Markets are fluctuating, you know, the economy's shrinking, you know, potentially there's recession all over the planet. There's a lot of uncertainty, and with that uncertainty comes the threat of redundancy. Now, redundancy itself can come in two in two guises. Uh, one is compulsory, so it's given to you. You are going to be made redundant. And the other version is voluntary. So you're given the opportunity to say, I would like to volunteer myself to be made redundant in this particular role. Now, I personally have been through both of these. Okay, so I'm um, sort of, I guess, talking from a place of a little bit of experience. And I want to kind of share with you in a moment some of the practical steps that I took. And for some people, this is a this is a crisis. OK. Um, and at the time when I was made compulsory, compulsory, such a word, uh, redundant, it felt a shock. It didn't feel an opportunity. It felt, oh, my word, my life has now just been turned upside down. OK, I no longer have a job. OK, I've got a big payout. So I've got some cash, which is only going to last so long. And you go into that mode of self-protection. How can I deal with this? What's going to happen next? I don't know. I've never been in this scenario or situation. But the very first thing that's really important to recognize if you are in a redundancy situation as a crisis is that you are not your career. OK, a lot of people who, you know, literally devote their life to their career will be starting from a very, very low baseline in understanding that. But you are not your career. Your career is your career. You are not your career. And redundancy is just what it is. It's a scenario that will play out as part of your career journey. OK, it is not the end of the world. Genuinely, it is not the end of the world. And as somebody who's been through both compulsory and voluntary redundancy, I can tell you there is a better life on the other side in the vast majority of cases. And there is a lot of research to explain that. So why is it that redundancy, as an example of a crisis, can really strike fear into most people? 
book well. Mind.org.uk have done a lot of research in this and have published a number of different reports in this. And one of the quotes that they've come up with is that whether expected or sudden, redundancy can cause huge uncertainty, stress and anxiety and can make existing mental health problems worse. So if there's any kind of propensity in you to be fearful, to have anxiety, to have any kind of mental health issues, then a trigger like redundancy and its inherent uncertainties, potentially unexpected moment of arrival in your life can trigger off those kinds of reactions. And again, some people would argue, well, that's a choice because you don't necessarily have to feel that because you could just potentially jump into the opportunity mode. Now, that is a very, very difficult thing to do. So I'm not here to say, oh, yeah, it's easy. It's it's you know, it's it's a simple thing to do. It's almost that you have to sense and feel the fear, feel the uncertainty and go through those kind of mental processes before you can begin to emerge from the the other side. And I would say, in part, with the compulsory redundancy I had, I went through quite a few of those kinds of emotions. But the one thing you can rest assured, no matter how much of a payout you get as part of the redundancy, no matter what the terms are, no matter how much your CV is up to date and attractive to the rest of the world, as a crisis, you need to be looking for the clarity in the situation. Okay, and this is about gathering the information and data that goes around this example. So in the case of a redundancy, one thing that you can be resting assured of is that there's a lot of research. And here's one from jobs.ac.uk, which actually came out with a quote that said only one out of all the people interviewed said he'd have his old job back given the chance. There's a huge amount of research that says people who navigate their way through redundancy as a crisis find that the world on the other side is better, it's easier, it's probably more financially stable, it's more exciting. And actually, if we were to reframe redundancy as a natural part of career development and career progression, then actually it can be seen as something that is an inevitable at some point. And most of us will go through something like this in our careers, but also it's an opportunity to reset, to rebalance. So how do people who kind of cope and come out the other side really well deal with this? And again, these are things that you can think of and play across to other kinds of crises. Okay, so this doesn't just apply to um, the crisis of redundancy. You can play this across in other situations. First thing is to work out your minimum financial commitments. Figure out how long you can survive practically with the resources or the payout in this case that you've been given. How long can you practically manage? Because then what you can do is you can begin to create a plan. And it isn't just about the panic mode and it isn't about, oh, now I've got all this big pot of cash. I'm just going to splash out and buy this, that and the other. It's all about going into super practical mode. And of course, you can think, well, that would absolutely play out across other different types of crises. So just taking that little step back for a moment, just reflecting, taking that deep breath and thinking, how long have I got here? How long how long can I just survive? How long can I make this work for? And we'll see this play out in some of the other examples I'm going to share with you in a moment. 
Also, it's about calling in favours from your network. So you've just been made redundant or you've just offered yourself up for voluntary redundancy. Well, we've none of us worked in isolation. So who do you know who you could call upon? Maybe it's a career coach. Maybe it's a recruitment advisor. Maybe it's somebody who you've just you know, finished working with or maybe somebody who you desire to work with. Who can you call in? Specialists, friends, peers, colleagues, people who can actually help in your network to help you structure your role. And let's assume that you're not going to start up a new business or you're not going to sort of take a year out. Let's assume that you're going to be looking for another role where well, your network can help you to do that and also help you to structure a daily job search. And this is what I did. I basically, I had a young family at the time when I had compulsory redundancy. And whilst in the first few days there was panic mode going on, I very quickly realized that hey, actually, I've got time on my side here, not time financially necessary, but time in terms of constructing my day. So what I did is I made sure I spent time with the family in the afternoons, but the mornings, I was working part time, to find a new job. So it was a daily or half daily job search, I was networking. And I was also in that time continually building my portfolio. So just spending that time, and it was a fair number of months, to do little short courses, to do little things that would just top up the gaps of the time that I didn't have when I was actually working in this role, which really was not a great role, if I'm being perfectly honest. Well, it was a great role, but I was not in the right place. So it really came to serve me this period of time to reset, to readjust, to re-kind of program what it was I needed. And by building that portfolio, I was able then to land a very, very nice job, which was so much more in alignment with me and where I was at that stage in my career and both personally as well, at the same time as actually getting some great quality time at home with the family. So the essence really behind all of this is that not, oh, isn't Neil great, but it was much more about my crisis handling tip one, which is take care of the practicalities. OK, so whatever crisis you're thinking about here, and you might actually be sat in one right now, it's take care of the practicalities. How long do the assets and resources that you have, how long do they last for you? Can you use and balance time appropriately? Don't get yourself into that prolonged mindset of storytelling, which is not going to help you. Switch into practical mode as far as you can. Yes, there are going to be times when you doubt. There are going to be times when you just can't see the wood from the trees. But if you can take care of the practicalities, it starts to get you into a situation where you think, hmm, this is now actually getting me to be able to take a few steps forward. And I'll talk about little bite-sized micro steps in just a moment. So tip one, take care of the practicalities in the crisis that you're in. Right, let's look at the, uh, the, the, the deep one. I said I was going to talk about um, bereavement. This is an interesting one. I'm not going to go too heavily into this because um, it isn't necessarily something that's particularly on piece with this crisis handling. But for a lot of people, bereavement is a crisis. OK, now this is an interesting one because actually, if we're being really, really honest, we all know it's coming. A lot of crises, as we've said, will hit you between the eyes and you didn't see them coming. Bereavement shouldn't be one that hits us like that. But why is it that it does? I mean, death is inevitable. Humans, animals, plants, products, businesses, we all have a life cycle. All of us, every single thing that's ever existed has a life cycle and will eventually die. 
So why are we in denial? Why do we think it's not going to happen to me? It's not going to happen with my partner. It's not going to happen with my parents or my children. It's inevitable. And yet we don't actually handle in advance, well, very few of us do, the idea that bereavement is a crisis that we can plan for. Okay, we take pensions out. Yes, we take life cover. Yes, we have funeral plans. But actually, do we actually attend to ourselves and actually think about, well, what am I going to do if this happens? Not from a point of fear, but from a point of practicality. Because often, really, if we think about it, we're actually programmed to live in denial and avoid change and really kind of embrace this thing that we call normal. But is there, and as we've seen over the last few years with the complete upheavals globally, is there actually really a normal? Probably isn't. So how can we use the concept of bereavement to really understand more about handling crises? Well, we all go through, if we're going through uh, bereavement, we go through what we might call the seven stages of grief. Yes, there's initially shock. And of course, a crisis has that as, as an inherent part of it. Oh, my gosh, there's a crisis. Right. OK. And then we're shocked to a greater or lesser extent. We often then kind of go into the denial or into anger. Maybe there's some kind of trading or bargaining. And for some of us, we move into the depression stage. Hopefully for a lot of us, if not all of us, we come out of those stages into a, a stage of kind of acceptance and hope. And then the final stage of grief, which is processing, we actually kind of get over it to some extent and we start to then plan for the future. So within a crisis, this is a microcosm of how we would deal with a significant crisis, both at work, but also personally. And so it's a really interesting one to explore that all crises have a range of emotions that happen at certain times. OK, so one of the things that we can do is in this is just acknowledgement. You know, we're using here bereavement as an example of dealing with a crisis, but acknowledge the pain. Just accept it that if it is what it is, the situation has happened, that person has now gone. OK, it's painful. I can feel the pain. I can feel it in my head. I can feel it in my heart. It's a difficult, hard thing to cope with. But if I can acknowledge that it is what it is and I can acknowledge that there's pain and if I can accept that the grief might trigger many different and unexpected emotions, I can begin to start to make sense of it. So handling a crisis like that, handling a crisis like bereavement is about making sense of the pain and the experience and the emotion. And again, the uncertainties and the chaos that this throws up. But it is about seeking face to face support from people who care about you, professionals or people in your network, because, of course, supporting yourself emotionally comes from also supporting yourself physically. And this is a lovely, lovely example of managing and handling a crisis that really gets to your core. And if this is somebody who you've lost, who is really close to you, then it's important to look after yourself through the crisis. Now, of course, you could be thinking here, well, hold on, I'm at this massive crisis at work. And do you know, actually, when I go out and just take a little bit of break from these things, I go out for a walk in the park or I take a longer lunch break, I come back and I feel a little bit refreshed. There is no, no coincidence there. Looking after yourself in a crisis physically and emotionally is absolutely critical. And it's really important to think of all of these crises that I'm giving you examples for 
as, you know, really kind of practical examples that do play over into all the other crises. Um, from the bereavement one, you can say, well, Neil, how, what do you know about crises? Well, really interestingly, one that I do want to share with you was when I lost my, um, my wife to breast cancer. Okay, we had a young family at the time. And for me, I kind of came through those seven stages of grieving pretty quickly, I would say relatively unscathed. Um, I was very, very close to my wife, very close, you know, kind of soulmates, you know, great relationship. And then suddenly she was gone. Okay, within the space of about 18 months to two years, she was gone. So how did I deal with that as a crisis? And again, there's a knock on sort of you know, bonus benefit tip at the end of this one is that well, what we did is we agreed a plan and responsibilities for me to then carry out after we knew she was going. And this was for me ensuring that our daughters, I got twin daughters who were 11 at the time when we lost their mum that they were supported through school and college, and that I would represent what my wife would have said and done um, in that period of time. So I was going to almost be her representative. So it wasn't that I was clinging on to the memory. It wasn't that I was kind of thinking, oh, you know, she's still here with me. But in an innate feeling that that was actually a presence there so that I could then become both mum and dad in that journey. And that basically sort of together through that period of time, we were still in spirit a team. And so for me, that really helped through that crisis, having that responsibility to take action, that responsibility for uh, making change, for seeing improvement, to kind of working my way through it. So not avoiding the emotions, not avoiding the pain, but just having a focus that wasn't in denial, but that helped me, and I'm going to use the word here, dissolve away what I felt at the time were kind of unnecessary things that would have bogged me down. Okay, so there's an interesting little thing for you to play with there. The whole idea that even in a catastrophic or potentially catastrophic situation for a family, when one of the parents goes, there are still ways actually through it. And again, I'm not here saying, oh, aren't I clever, aren't I great? It was just something that worked for me. But the idea of having a plan and a responsibility to get through that crisis was a way to actually kind of manage the situation, not in denial, not avoiding all the pain and the feelings and the hurt and the loss, but just having something also to hook onto that was of value. So my crisis handling tip number two, which, again, you can play over into other things as well, is to affirm the smallest of accomplishments in pursuit of the mission. In other words, as you make little steps forward in that target or that plan that you have, just acknowledge them. You know, affirm that, hey, you know, I did that good little thing. I got them into that school or, you know, we did the homework on time and it wasn't late or, you know, I achieved that little goal that I had. And it was a small thing. But for me, it was a big thing just in that moment. Yeah, I'm doing OK. So any kind of crisis that you have is about breaking it down into small, manageable, bite sized chunks. The worst thing you can do is to see a crisis and something as big as that or as big as redundancy or as big as the stuff that you might be encountering yourself, seeing it as the big thing. That's the hardest way to encounter and to deal with it. But if you can break it down into little small accomplishments that you can achieve, then if you see those things as taking you towards the end goal of getting through the crisis, you can start to make some great inroads in, in basically cracking it in a way that kind of feels like you're you're doing it. You're actually making it. You're actually getting there. 
On to the next one then. So we're going to keep working through these. Next one I said was running out of cash. Now let's use cash flow in business as the example here. Um, and again, yeah, been there, seen it, done it. So I've done the redundancy thing. I've done the bereavement thing. I've also done the cash flow crisis in business. So my business, I've got a, a small uh, marketing consultancy. It's smaller than it was at this stage when I was running out of cash. Uh, but about 10 years ago, we faced a cash flow crisis. And you'll know if you're in any kind of size of business that cash is the lifeblood of any business. If you don't have enough to pay the bills, you're stuffed, basically. And so this can be for a lot of um, small to medium sized businesses, particularly where they are reliant on cash flow because they don't necessarily have the borrowing potential. They don't necessarily have shareholder capital to draw down on. They don't have that kind of those, those deep assets or those deep pockets. Cash, the flow of cash through the business, the money coming in and the bills going out are the lifeblood of the business. And when it doesn't quite balance, that can be a crisis. So I want to use this one as the next crisis uh, point that we can learn from. So here's some lovely eight tips here from American Express who say there are eight ways you can improve cash flow in your business. OK, the first one is to negotiate quick payment terms. In other words, get the flow of cash into your business faster than the way the speed that the cash flows out of it. Well, yeah, obviously, but you'd be amazed how many businesses don't think about that. Give customers incentives and penalties. In other words, reward customers for paying quickly and penalize them for paying slowly. Amazing how many customers or how many organizations don't do that with their customers. Check your accounts payable terms. Can you reduce the speed of payment by changing your terms from pay us within 90 days down to maybe pay us within 30 days or from 30 days down to 14 days. The quicker you can get your bills paid, the faster then you can afford to pay the people who you owe. Can you cut unnecessary spending? And again, can you see what's happening here? This is all about efficiency. It's all about process. It's all about forensically looking at the crisis. So if you're finding that you're running out of cash in business, can you cut unnecessary spending? Just spend on the stuff that you need to spend on, not the stuff you want to spend on. Could you consider leasing instead of buying? You know that big thing that you wanted to buy because you think it's going to make you look good? Could you lease it? Could you delay the payment terms? Could you just do it on a slower basis or could you put it off until tomorrow? Study your cash flow patterns. This is just a great, simple little checklist here from American Express. Study your cash flow patterns. It might be this is a temporary crisis. And again, being aware that all crises are not of the same size is really important. Study your cash flow patterns. Is it a seasonal thing? Is it just because you're in the middle of the summer? Oh, look, this happened at the same time last year and the year before. We'll be OK come the fall. You know, maybe that is what you're going to be seeing. So maintain a cash flow forecast. Get down and forensic with the numbers. Most people, particularly if they're in marketing or business development, are all about the revenue flow in. But they forget the profit line, the margin line. They also forget about how much these sales are costing us. So understand your cash flow forecast. Strip out the customers who are costing you so much to actually um, create and to convert and make sure that you're working to the most profitable customers or the most profitable demographic that you can.
And consider things like invoice factoring. Can you spread the cost of sending out these invoices over a period of time so it makes your inbound money flow a lot more predictable? Many different ways that you can look at this, but the main message over the cash flow crisis is get down and forensic with what you do and take action. You know, it is all very well buried in the sand and thinking, well, we could just go out and try and sell more. And that is what most businesses try to do. But actually, could you get a bit smarter with the way that you manage your way through this particular crisis? Are there different ways that you could actually look at this crisis again as an opportunity? A solution might be to sell shares to increase shareholder equity, which could be used in itself. That incoming money could be used to pay the company's debt off. Could you convert loans to more cost effective ways of, of borrowing? Could you reduce the operational costs? And I don't necessarily mean making people redundant, although that could be an option. But are there ways that you could do things smarter, quicker, more efficiently? This could be the time to make those changes. And could you just operate more profitably? Basically, focusing and doubling down on the margin focus, not just the sales that most of us, if we're particularly in, as I say, sales or marketing or business development, get focused on doing the sales, getting the revenue in. But actually focusing on profits can be a really neat way of actually encountering a better cash flow situation, which for a lot of businesses can be a big, big crisis. So for me, what was my example? I said I've been there seen it, felt it, and boy, did I feel it because I didn't think our business was going to make it. It was going very well. We were having loads of sales. We had a growing client base. You know, we were doing loads of stuff. We were really burning the midnight oil. And to the outsider, that could look like, wow, they're flying. What a great business. But inside, it was going south. It really was. We were having to recruit expensive staff. And of course, with expensive staff comes cost to be able to serve this growing customer base. And I couldn't quite figure out a way of balancing the balance sheet. I couldn't figure out a way of being able to get the invoices paid before I had to pay the staff. And I was earning less and less and less in this amazing growing marketing consultancy. Something had to give. So I basically decided we've got to now do a number of things. We need to get smart. OK, we need to really understand what's going on. This process is not working. And all I'm doing is just continually feeding this monster that is going to go south. And we are going to go bankrupt because the cash flow is dying. So I remembered actually a phrase that I'd heard a few years earlier from the public sector, which would often talk about sweating your assets. In other words, are there things within your business, the resources you have, the assets that you own that could actually get you out of this crisis? Because are there things in there that you're not actually monetizing, things within your organization or your business or your team that you could actually spend or you can actually outsource, you could actually sell these things. And potentially, could you pivot as an organization? In other words, could you do things completely differently based on the assets that you have? Because if what you're doing is not working, although it looks like it's working to the outside world, but cash flow is not, so you're in a crisis, could you do things very, very differently? So what did I do to pivot? Well, we decided we were going to strip back all of the clients that we had. We were only going to work with the most profitable ones. And what I was going to do was to franchise the business by productizing what we already do 
and then selling a license so that other people could buy into doing what we do for themselves. So I sell you a license to do marketing consultancy just like I do, and then we'll support you so we can sell for that. We'll get some revenue commission off the basis of the sales that you and your business are doing because you're franchising us. And so we can grow the business. The cash flow is beautiful because we don't have to outlay anything. We don't have to buy or spend on anything. We can just serve our franchisees. And literally within months, the business had turned around through pivoting. So this was something that I hadn't seen prior to the crisis. So my top tip really here, and this is a really, really important one, and really one that I would say really you know, sort of, you know, plays across all different crises. And this is my crisis handling tip three is reframe the crisis into an opportunity, not a threat. Whilst you might think you are going south with this thing and you're never going to get out of the crisis, if there's an opportunity to look deeply into the situation and basically use the assets that you have to potentially pivot So do something completely left field or go at a complete right angle to where you've been headed. There's an opportunity here to turn the crisis into the opportunity and take away the threat. So there's another little example of, again, reframing this thing that you're seeing. So let's kind of continue this theme of crises at work, because I think we're onto something here. Uh, There's a lot of research in terms of crisis management, crisis communications. um, And Robert Chandler, who's an internationally renowned crisis communication expert, says crises at work basically have six stages. You get a kind of an early warning. You do a bit of a risk assessment. You then respond in an appropriate way. You try and manage your way through that process, hopefully to a point of resolution, and then you recover as a business. Okay, so six really quite straightforward sort of checkpoints, if you like, within this. And again, this is very similar to the seven stages of grief and bereavement. We've always got these kind of natural processes that are underpinning all the different types of crises that we have. So whatever crisis you're going through, there probably is a framework or a checklist that you can work to. And you'll see that they are very, very similar. They start with this kind of this this warning or this shock at the front end. They go through this period of grieving, recognition, acknowledgement, and they come out of the other side actually in a pretty good space. And so they do all follow this kind of pattern, if you like. But often what we think as we're in business is, oh, we didn't see that coming. Because if we're not planning ahead, if we're not creating strategies designed to get us out of those sudden, significant, potentially negative events, so we're not actually preparing or pre-planning for a crisis, then actually aren't we just setting ourselves up to fail? So if you're doing a marketing plan and you haven't got a contingency, i.e. a plan B, what are you doing? If plan A doesn't work, you've set yourself up to fail. If you're setting out with a new startup business, for example, and the business doesn't really resonate because the products don't work or the customers don't really like the service you give or you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time, what are you going to do with all those assets and all that time you've created? Having a plan B allows you to have options. And that's really what we're after here as we look at crises management actually in work. There's loads and loads and loads of really great examples on the internet that you can go and and research. All you have to do is crisis management at work and you will find them. 
many, many sort of great examples. Ones that I like particularly are the ones that give you the opportunity to see the difference between proactive and reactive crisis management. Okay, so the reactive is really crisis management. Okay, so you're managing the crisis as it happens in real time. So you're kind of almost on the back foot, you're quite reactive. Now, I'm quite a planful person, therefore, I naturally go into the proactive, less crisis management, more risk management. And you've got a choice. If you don't want to be spending the time and the energy to create a risk management profile for the things that you do in work, that's fine. It's your call. If you are somebody who really enjoys crises and you just want to kind of see how it goes, Take the reactive approach. I'm not here to advocate risk management in a proactive way, but it can help you if you are the kind of person who just likes a bit of an itinerary, somebody who likes a little bit more predictability. And here's a great example. We've got some very, very good friends who, if they have a holiday, they might say be taking 10 days. They will rock up at an airport. They have nowhere booked. They'll, they'll take the flight, they'll go to the destination, and they will just see what happens. And then as if by magic, people appear to serve them, to drive them places, to give them an offer, to you know be at this wonderful place up in the hills. That strikes fear into me. I much rather have an itinerary that tells me what I'm going to do on each day. So which camp are you in? Are you in the risk management, proactive, or you're in the crisis management, reactive? Both can have great outcomes. There is no problem with either. It's just a choice. So crisis management is about choosing whether you want to manage risk or whether you just want to take the, the, the crisis on the chin and then deal with it in, in that moment. You can choose. If you want to go down the planned risk approach, again, there are many, many sort of frameworks and, and checklists to do this. For me, the key thing when we're looking to plan risk as part of a process to manage crises in our organizations and our businesses is to always be looking to determine or prioritize the business impact that a particular risk has. OK, so, for example, if you work in a man um, management or marketing consultancy and you have clients, one of the business impacts could be that you lose a significant number of clients all at the same time. So if you have planned risk, the point would be, what will be the business impact if that happens? Could we quantify it? Could we qualify it? And also, what is the likelihood of that risk happening? This is identifying a risk, seeing the impact or potential impact of it, and then from that, identifying well, what is the likelihood? So we can kind of decide how deep we need to go with the plan B that we're looking to create. And if it is just that we just need to recognize it, we don't need to actually plan it because the business impact is low and the risk of it happening is pretty low. So we just need to have it there on our list of something to do, something to be wary of and, and build into the strategy, but we don't necessarily need a full-on plan B. Alternatively, it might be something that is high business impact and high risk. In other words, you need to be able to log and learn and adjust and adapt the options that you have available to you. So you will be creating a plan B. And if it's a huge business critical potential crisis that might crop up, I would even recommend even considering a plan C, because if plan B doesn't work, you might even want to fall back to that. So businesses and organizations who take that approach 
typically have what we might have uh, described as an, um, a resilient and a vigilant culture. Okay, so if your organization is very risk averse, it will generally be quite resilient and it will be very vigilant and always on the watch out with processes and systems for when crises might crop up. But if you're the kind of organization who really doesn't care, you know, just thinks, oh, we'll deal with it when it happens. You know, crisis management's important, but we do a lot when we have the problem. We're going to be reactive and we're fine. We're fine. We've got resources to deal with that when it happens. I'm not saying one is right and one is wrong, but the culture of the organization will very much lead you into being one of those quite naturally. So the question is, which one feels more comfortable to you? Because if the one that feels more comfortable to you is I need to plan, then I would say plan before the crisis arrives. Because what you're going to be dealing with then is this kind of thing, this unforeseen risk. OK, because a lot of stuff can happen if you don't plan. So it might well be that your operations are going to get hit hard. It might be that you're going to be looking to come out of a deep pit that is disaster recovery. It might be that you need to have some kind of sort of emergency recovery system or some information system contingencies or you know it might be something that's going to really really sort of hit hard at the infrastructure of your business of course one of the big things that comes out of you know reactive unforeseen risk or unforeseen or unplanned um, crisis handling is crisis communications you will have be or a lot of this will be happening in the public domain so you will be seeing things happening you know in public people will be commenting and asking questions and customers might start to get a little bit you know less confident in in you as an organization planning ahead allows you to have strong planful and very timely crisis communications that you can then just literally switch on and roll out the downside of not planning ahead in your crisis management is that you have to do that on the fly. And often that requires a lot of resource, which can be distracting and can also take you away from solving the problem at hand. So I would say even if you decide we're going to be reactive to crises in work that happen, I would say make sure you've got a crisis communications team who know what to say, how to say it for all of the things that might occur, even if you don't want to put into place all of the plans, like the contingency plans that I've been talking about. At least have a communications team or person who is able to switch on some automated responses, some really, really fast um sort of contingency and um, sort of responses both to customers and pretty much to any stakeholder who may well be interested. That to me is super important when it comes to handling crisis in an organization. And leads me on to my crisis handling tip number four. There is one more tip number four, which is take a deep breath. Any crisis of any scale at work that we've just described there or anything else that kind of might be happening with you right now is take a deep breath, stay calm. But importantly, and as we've just identified there, there are lots of different elements that go into making up a crisis in work is work from the full picture. Do not just work from the person who shouts the loudest. Do not work from the thing that looks on the surface as to be the big problem understand underneath why and how has that become a problem are there some some constituent elements or constituent parts or things that we could solve down at a granular level 
that might help us with the thing that looks like the problem on the surface. So think about the iceberg. It might be the stuff that's shown above the water, but it could also be something a little bit more profound or deep under the water. So always work from the full picture. And you can only do that to give yourself the space and the time to do that if you stay calm and take a deep breath. So that's my tip number four. And let's get back to kind of the real basics, the stuff that can happen on a day to day basis. And we just want to briefly look here at customer complaints because these can turn into crises. So the big, big trick here with dealing with customer who's customers who complain and you think, oh, this might turn into a crisis because these people are influential and they're going to do this in public is never minimize the issue. OK, every single complaint is an opportunity for you to improve, but also for you to give great added value customer support and customer service. OK, because otherwise, if you don't, there's a potential that a crisis may well ensue from what was a small problem that then became a big problem. Loads of research on how to handle crises with customers. One of the key things to remember here is, though, that you are just seeing the tip of the iceberg because maybe one in 25, one in 26 customers will actually complain. The rest of them won't complain. They'll say nothing, but they've gone. OK, so being very, very mindful over how your customers are feeling, listening and being very, very close to your customers, constantly doing little check ins with them. Your customer satisfaction score, something like a net promoter score can be a really good little benchmark for that. But always be listening to kind of the, the, the sentiment, really, of your customer feedback. So be watching social media. Just be very, very aware of how your brand and your products and services are being talked about right here, right now. Because if you can nip in the bud, potentially that one customer who was going to send in a complaint or was going to be sort of talking about you in public, if you can nip in the bud that problem, you can solve crises before they become such. So loads and loads of different checklists. The big, big things here are all about being open and authentic. It's very much listening with empathy. It is also about going back to the customer in a very timely fashion, acting on your promises that you make and following up, making the customer feel special. OK, so no matter how negatively the customer comes to you and potentially if it's a big, big customer and they're really looking to be you know, seriously angry with you and they're really, really going to haul you over the coals, if you can empathize, if you can listen, if you can actually take it on the chin and say, OK, we messed up, we haven't done as well as we would normally like to do, let's work together to solve this and then really, really believe in and help them to believe in the fact that you are really on their side. And then by doing that, you can really be adding into maybe some guidelines, some stuff that you can then sort of basically continuously learn from, because that process of listening, of changing, of adapting, reporting back, sharing with the customer and kind of almost collaboratively and co-creating a solution allows you to create some guidelines that you can then share across the organization. And this is important because every single customer communication that was negative, that could have turned into a complaint or something bigger like a crisis, is an opportunity for you to continually improve your customer support, your customer satisfaction, and the way that everybody in your team, through your service guidelines, which you need to set and then communicate, 
all of those things can be improved on an ongoing basis. So it really is genuinely an opportunity. But let's just assume for a moment that it hasn't actually gone particularly well and the customer is still ranting and raving and they are not happy. What one thing can you do to solve this crisis? Well, you can apologize. You can say, I'm sorry. As soon as you say, I'm sorry, you will find the whole energy dynamic and the balance in that relationship, in that conversation, in that moment will shift. And of course, you have to mean it. You can't just say, Mr. Customer, Mrs. Customer, I'm really sorry and not mean it. If you do, they will see through that and you're almost then into a worse position. So when you apologize sincerely, authentic, you make something happen, there are virtually no customers on this planet who are worth having, who are going to sort of see you in anything but a positive light, because you have truly empathized with their scenario and their situation. And that, to be honest, in most situations, is the surefire way of pouring water on this crisis fire because it dampens the issue, because actually they only did really want to be heard. And of course, a lot of the time, if that still is not quite solving the problem, there are many, many places where you can find all the top tips for handling the negative reviews in public. Searchenginejournal.com, search 16 tips for handling negative reviews in searchenginejournal.com, and you will find 16 surefire ways of always being able to stay that one step ahead of potentially negative crises happening in social media or on your review sites um, or anywhere where you get ratings or star ratings. It's really, really important to stay very, very close to this because, again, if you can preempt these things from becoming crises, because you were listening, because you were there, then that is a great opportunity for you to then kind of really just be, you know, in control over this crisis. But if all else fails, and again, this applies to all the other scenarios that we've looked at here in crises, crisis handling tip number five, my last of the five tips is apologize and truly mean it. Really, really, when you're in a work situation, anybody who can be vulnerable can say, look, I'm sorry, I messed up. Or on behalf of the company, I'd like to say, sorry, we didn't do what we would normally like to do. We didn't hit the target. We didn't hit the level of service that we would normally expect to be giving to you. Let's work together and solve this. As soon as you take that position, it isn't a position of weakness, it's a position of strength. Vulnerability and apology at that stage is a great way of handling a crisis. And of course, if we're talking about bereavement, if we're talking about redundancy, what we're not talking about there necessarily is apologizing, but we're talking about empathy. We're talking about recognizing, hey, this stuff is tough. Let's just recognize it for a minute. A crisis can be a real emotional and physical challenge to everybody and anybody, even the masters of crisis handling, crisis management, find this stuff tough. But if you can just acknowledge it, just be really honest and authentic and do stuff with empathy, this is a surefire way of handling any kind of crisis. So to summarize, 
put into the uh, the chat uh, box there any kind of questions that you've got and I'll be happy to answer those over the next few minutes. But the final kind of sort of checklist, if you like, of my top five crisis handling tips is take care of the practicalities. Get down into the details. Don't think of a crisis as being this great big thing that you can't handle. Think of it as a lot of little individual steps that you can manage and you can pick off. Affirm the smallest of accomplishments in pursuit of the mission. In other words, as you start to tick these things off, recognize it, reward yourself. Just give yourself a little sort of virtual pat on the back and say, I'm doing this. I'm getting there. I'm managing and handling this problem, this crisis, this issue. I'm getting there. Reframe the crisis into an opportunity, not a threat. Crisis here is something that you can grow with. It's something you can learn from. It wasn't arriving in your world by mistake. You know, I'm a huge believer in serendipity. You know, things come to us for a reason. So what is your lesson here? A crisis isn't there, no matter how big. And I've talked about some big stuff as we've gone through this, you know, bereavement, redundancy, all these huge, great life affirming moments. They are an opportunity for you to grow. So what is the lesson you were meant to be sort of you know, learning from, from that particular crisis? Point four was about deep breath, stay calm, work from the full picture, get the facts, get the understanding. Don't get swept away by those little anecdotes that can help you to tell negative or unhelpful stories in your head. You know, stay calm, work from the big picture. And if you're in a customer support kind of potential crisis moment, apologize and mean it. It really is the way to gain, you know, real confidence and a really, really deep way of building that relationship. And that to be to me really will be the five things I will use going forward in any of the crises that I kind of find in my world and in my life going forward. And let's face it, crises, taxes and death, those life life guaranteed uh, certainties that we're all going to face.